Happy July, everybody. You know I hate to waste your time with a news update, but this is something I gotta tell you up front all this month to make sure everybody hears it. And that is that on the fourth anniversary of the Plus system, the start of August 2018, we are raising the cost of admission by a little bit to $8 a month. I wrote at length about the whys and the whats and the hows in the THC newsletter, which we're going to call the Higher Side Herald from now on. And I'm going to be much more consistent with it now that it's got a proper name. But read that on Facebook or Twitter if you really want to get into the details, but here's what you need to know. If you're a current Plus member, you don't have to do anything if you want to stay on board the commercial-free and action-packed two-hour ride we got going on here, but the price will be going up in August. If you've prepaid for 6 or 12 months in advance, that time is covered. You're already in. But the next time the system needs to charge you, whatever level you're at, it will charge you at that new rate. It's a change I've been torching myself over for a while, and the Plus members who have given me some responses have all been really understanding. And I can sigh the sweet sigh of relief. But I'm sure we'll lose some people too, and I'm prepared for that. But please make sure you click on my account from the plus menu bar and cancel before August 1st if you must. The rest of you first hour only folks have a little more time to get in on the ground floor as they say. But even at $8, I think we're still an alright deal when you consider what else is out there. I hate to do it, but even Amazon Prime has raised the price on me twice in the last few years, and I think they have a lot more members than me, and I'm not asking for a key to your front door. We're still going to have five top-notch monthly treks into this weird and conspiratorial world with the best guests in the business, but I'm also going to sweeten the pot with a monthly video session of good times and open lines where I will sit by the phone for you, dear people. And we're going to call them joint sessions. Clever, right? So that's the news in THC land. I know, I know, say it ain't so. But as the guy who actually depends on this thing we got going here, nobody's more anxious and nervous about a big change than I am. So thanks for all the support and for not biting my head off too much. Now let's do the damn thing. Puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us, just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? The highest chat show Greg Carwood and Company Abracadabra, higher side chatters, let's talk magic. Because magic is one of those things they just don't want us to know about, and the power to craft and influence your own reality is one the shadowy puppet masters of the power pyramid would rather just keep for themselves. But we've talked with many guests over the years who have preached the magical worldview, the power of visualization, abundance-generating exercises, deep meditation, deal-making with ethereal entities, sigil magic, ceremonial magic, astrology, subconscious strengthening, developing spirit allies, and a whole Pandora's box of magical systems, tools, and disciplines that all insinuate the same thing. 
that you're not just the victim of an insane system and the constant bombardment of the capstone cabal, but really a powerful co-creator in a wavy universe of probability and potential just waiting to be tipped in your favor. Though it does take work, and it's also good to get reminders of this esoteric and necessary knowledge because everyone is ready and waiting to tell you there's nothing to see behind door number three, and ladies and gentlemen, I disagree. Here to talk about these things through his own experiences and research is a powerful advocate of the power of magic, Thomas Sheridan. Thomas is an independent alternative artist, author, satirist, comedy writer, musician, public speaker, and researcher from Dublin, Ireland. He's probably best known for his book, Puzzling People, The Labyrinth of the Psychopath, but he's also done work on a plethora of interesting and alternative topics, including his latest book, Sorcery, The Invocation of Strangeness. From the land of Ire, a student and teacher of many strange aspects of the construct, a true sorcerer extraordinaire, Thomas, welcome to the higher side. Well, thank you very much for that eloquent and comprehensive intro. I'm really looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, man, I am really psyched as well. I really liked your book, Sorcery, and I've seen a ton of your presentations and videos on YouTube. Really fascinating stuff. And to unpack the true history of the Druids, as well as the knowledge that the Romans tried to wipe out along with them is something I'm really interested in. I think a lot of people listening know that the old ways have been wiped out all around the globe, but there definitely seems to be something exceptional about the Ireland-Scotland area. The folklore, the stone circles, the traditions, it's all pretty fascinating. But I guess what were some of the first threads you pulled on where you realized, oh man, there is a huge story here, a huge body of knowledge that's been attacked, and maybe it has more value than what we're given today. Oh, I can recall it very, very clearly. I was 10 years old in primary school, and they used to take us on school trips in the springtime around visiting famous places. We did a sort of a, a bus ride of Dublin, and the school would hire a bus. One of the places they took us to was the Boyne Valley, up about 50 miles north of Dublin, where the famous megalithic structures of Newgrange Stonehenge and Nowthar, these are 5,000-year-old Neolithic megaliths that have incredible solar alignments. They're so written into our folklore. And they took us up there, and I can't remember, it was 9 or 10. It might have been 11, I don't know. And I was just mind-blown by it. They took us inside the central chamber where on the winter solstice, the sun shines right down the central passageway and illuminates the internal chamber, which was actually held in Irish folklore for years, and no one believed that they thought it was a mythology until a scientist eventually slept inside it in the 1960s and says, hey, well, all these hillbillies around here are all right. They're telling the truth. And it was connected to the idea of the Irish mythological god of poetry and sexual romance, and it was basically symbolic of his sperms fertilizing the central chamber. So they told us this. They didn't tell us this as kids back then. And then after this sensational visit into, like, the ancient magic of Ireland, they took us to a cathedral in a nearby city called Drogheda, where there was a head of a saint inside a glass box, you know, one of these bizarre Catholic relics. Mm. And myself and all the kids, from being in a high of visiting these amazing Neolithic structures, these places of magic and mythology, and were taken to see this bizarre Catholic relic of a decapitated head inside a box, we were all like, you know, the bus was going back to the school. We were all quiet. We were all taken down. It was almost like we were, what's the word, abused, uh, psychologically were abused, a kind of a like mind control thing. Next day in school, the teacher was telling us, so write some essay on what the trip we took out yesterday. 
and he was talking about this guy, the saint in the box, and what a great hero of the church he was, and he, he was a martyr for Ireland. And I said to the teacher, and I says, can you tell us more about Newgrange and these monuments in the Boyne Valley? And he says, oh, they were just a place where they worshipped the dead. Hmm. And so irony and good, decent truth about the our megalithic ancestors and much later Celtic ancestors and those kinds of supernatural terms are very absent. So that began the journey for me personally. Well, that's great, man, because I'm right there with you. I grew up Catholic, and as a kid, you didn't really realize it, but Catholic traditions are very dark. You got a big human sacrifice on a cross and the cannibalistic ritual of the Eucharist. Like, when you really unpack it, kind of strange, but I think you make a great point there about tonality. The thing with the Catholic adoption of the pagan religions is they really took the magic. I mean, they've really taken all the pagan magic and wrapped it up in this weird kind of bizarre homage to a Middle Eastern debt cult. Now, it's really strange because if you look at a lot of stuff in the Catholic rites, the rituals, they're very, very pagan in nature, but they've just been switched around away from celebrating the ideas of nature, the human condition, and the human experience within the cosmos, and turned it around with this kind of thing, like, well, if you deal with this guy on the cross, this thing rotting on a stick... <laughs> If we do it that once, you'll get the payoff. So they stole our magic. That's why all over Europe, holy wells and the Druid wells all became sacred holy wells and this kind of that is nonsense. And this was a very common thing. I mean, let's just not pick on the Catholic Church. It was a wholesale corruption of paganism that was sold back to us as something very, very, very different. And you have the idea of the transubstantiation. That's blood magic and sympathetic magic and all these other kind of ideas that we believe in or we know about in Western magical tradition are all inside the Catholic rite, the Catholic mass, especially when it was the Latin Catholic mass. So, yeah, absolutely. You see, this is the thing. Your intro said it all. Just like there's an economic class system, just like there's a property class system, just like there's a science class system and an educational class system, there are the haves and there are the have-nots. Well. Sorcery and magic works exactly the same way. The elites have it all, and then tell the rest of us it doesn't exist. That was a big point I wanted to put out in this book. Not so much from the conspiracy. The conspiratorial folks have figured this out. But then, unfortunately, they say, well, the answers go back to Christianity, or they're all devil men. <laughs> you know, my attitude is that this stuff is working for them. Uh, I'm an insurgent. I want a piece of the action. Yes, that is absolutely my attitude as well. And uh, I think we get this idea that because the elite are doing so many nefarious things that the magic must be nefarious. And I disagree. I think it's uh, a tool. And you make a great point about the kind of steamrolling of the pagans. In the book, you say the European magical tradition has been under constant attack by Christians and other Abrahamic cults from the Middle East for almost 2000 years. And I think a lot of us know that's true, but we don't know a ton of details. Is there more you can say about the history of this attack? What were some of the major points where the magical tradition took the biggest blows in those early days? Well, it's a vast subject. The first way you could probably point to it was, was basically one pagan tradition attacking another, and that was the Romans and the failed Iceni revolt in Britain in AD 60-61-ish where you all know about the famous story of Boudicca, Boudicca, or whatever you want to call her, and she rose up the Iceni army against the occupying Romans, gave them a hell of a beating, I might add, even though they lost. The Romans discovered that they'd really have to, although being pagans, they were far more open-minded and tolerant of other religions than, say, the Abrahamics or the Christians would be. And so they realized how powerful the Druids were, central to Celtic Britain society. So they annihilated them. 
They annihilated them on the island of Anglesey. They sent the whole Roman legion across to basically get these shamans, and they annihilated them. But also, Druids were much more than just the spiritual things. They also carried the genealogies, the legal structures, and very many other things. It was a much more powerful and complex position. But that was probably the first big attack in this part of the world. But again, that was pagan on pagan. Now, the real business began with the emergence of Christianity around 300, very early period of Christianity, a couple of hundred years after the Great Commission, as it's called, where allegedly Jesus Christ told his 12 apostles to go out there and spread the gospels around the world. So this was Second Temple Rabbinical Judaism. This was not a new religion. This is a thing that people have to get into their heads. The early Christians were not Christians. They were Jews. And it took hundreds and hundreds of years for Christianity as we know it today and Judaism to go their separate ways. So the earliest ones came out of Syria, they came out of the Middle East, they came out of where Palestine would be today, Judea, Egypt, and they moved into the Eastern Roman Empire. Immediately they started attacking statues, claiming that all the classical artworks had pagan demons inside them. We all know the famous story of Hypatia and the burning of the Library of Alexandria. They eventually made their way into the Roman Empire until Constantine the Great in the 3rd century realized this would be an ideal way of exonerating himself and his own behavior, such as boiling his wife alive in a bathtub. Hmm. And also, he saw the fanaticism, the lack of fear of debt within these militant Christians, and he said these would be very useful for the army. So that's how the Roman Empire became Christian. And then from that point on, it is just pure extermination. The last pagan tribes were taken out in the 1500s by the Third Swedish Crusade. It lasted for 1500 years, the extermination of European pagans. You have letters from all kinds of bishops and popes saying that, you know, maybe killing the pagans is not good enough. What we should rather do is take over their sacred groves and temples and compare them to Christian churches. It was a 1,500-year spiritual cleansing and genocide. And then the Christians, when they completed that, wrote all these stories about the great evangelical, peaceful conversion of Europe. Hmm. That is a great point, and it's something I was going to mention because it comes up in the book a lot, but I do think we have this general perception that the conversion happened like overnight, but it was a much longer, bloodier process than people might realize. Like you said, it took over a century. Well, this fictional character of St. Patrick, well, St. Patrick's a kind of interesting story. There seems to be conflicting theories about it. Some people say there was an early missionary called St. Patrick who arrived in the 4th century to Ireland and Britain, and he didn't achieve anything. I think there's a lot of good truth to that. He was a failure, basically. The pagans laughed at him. Now, these wouldn't have been guys that walked around in silk green robes and carried, you know, a bishop's crook and had a fish head hat. These would have been like guys who were dressed in rags, smelly, quite insane. <laughs> the locals would have thought these guys were maniacs. The pagans were far more refined. They didn't do things like eat insects and castrate themselves. Self-castration was a central point of early Christianity. This is another reason why the Romans were impressed with them, because they just were so fanatical. But then there seems to be a period where Christianity had no impact in Ireland. Later on, a bishop called Aid of Sleti commissioned a monk to write a fictional history of a character called St. Patrick. And basically, the story says that when he got to Ireland, Ireland was a place of human sacrifice. The Druids used to cut people up while they were alive. It was a grim place of horror and death until this fictional character, this patrician, which I believe is probably a code word for a Roman invasion, not so much with military, although it would have been there, but mercenaries and that kind of thing. A, a classic, what we've come to know as a kind of CIA operation taking place in the early Middle Ages. And they basically killed the Druids all over where I live here on the West Coast. There's all 
place. Oh, St. Patrick, he cast the Druids down here. And just by chance, they happened to be like 500 foot cliffs over the sea or the mountains with a sheer face cliff drop of a thousand feet, you know, meaning cast them down, meaning he had his goons throw them off or whatever the patrician crusade was. And then they started converting all the Druid wells to holy wells, dedicated to various Christian saints. Now, one of the points that Christians make, they say, well, the Europeans were kind of bored with their old pagan gods and they longed for something new and the Christianity from the Middle East was new and exciting and it was a new thing and it was fresh well this couldn't be further from the truth all you have to do is look at the pagan temples that were built in the classical world and in the Nordic world but remember 70% of the pagan world's art has been destroyed that's why the Elgin marbles have their faces smashed off and the temple of Athena which was in Syria which was first attacked 1700 years ago by Christians was blown up two years ago by ISIS. So the process was completed. This is quite a frightening and dark thing. The viciousness that both, say, Christianity and Islam, because of their evangelical nature, jihad and crusade, the unbridled viciousness that those two sects of the Abrahamic religion demonstrate towards pagan cultures is quite frightening when you sit down and look at it in a neutral viewpoint. Like, Cambridge professor Catherine Nixie produced a remarkable book last year called The Darkening Age, and it's a no-holds-barred academic but well-written and easy-to-read insight into the absolute carnage unleashed by Christians in the first 200 years they were in power. Right on. Yeah, I definitely wrote that book title down because that might be something to explore deeper. And you make a really good point about just so much of this stuff, but we tend to kind of trust older records, forgetting that propaganda and espionage and perception management is nothing new. And that just makes it all that much harder to unpack correctly. And I really do like when I hear new terms or threads of things that aren't really around anymore. And you mentioned in the book that one of the big things they destroyed was a magical language called Oham that the pagan Irish used. And that along with that, they destroyed dozens or maybe even hundreds of Oham standing stones or, which is even more nefarious, they vandalized them to put crosses on them, engraved crosses on them so that it made it look like, oh, Christianity's been here forever. In fact, these are Christian, which clearly we know now is like not any part of the Christian tradition that I know or the Catholic tradition more specifically. But what can you tell us about Oham, this magical language that is kind of lost to history. Well, it's not really. It's like we do know quite a lot about it. Before I go to that, an important point to make is you segued in there beautifully. You said that in general, we know nothing about the Druids. Well, and they'll say to you, oh, they left no legacy. Now, this is a very British kind of attitude towards it because the only thing we know about the Druids in terms of academic sources outside Ireland would be Pilnies or Julius Caesar's accounts of the Gallic Wars. These are pure propaganda. There's all this nonsense about wicker men and all these kinds of things that they wrote. My book, The Druid Code, I showed that that's basically all nonsense. In Ireland, very much so, and to a lesser degree in Wales, but particularly in Ireland, the Druids remained as a central focus in Ireland until the 1600s, until the Renaissance. This is amazing. People don't know this. After Christianity came along, the one thing that the power structures in Ireland said would not negotiate on would be the power with the Druids. But they did agree that they would be secular, they would not practice pagan religion, and that they would have all the functions they had within pagan Irish culture, within the new Christian culture, except religion. So they were basically transformed into something in Irish called the file, 
which is basically bards. And that's where the bards came along. And the last of them disappeared in Ireland about 1610 as a result of basically a major war involving Ireland, Spain and England. But anyway, the record on Druidry in Ireland is a phenomenal and vast because why? Our Druids actually snuck into the early Christian church and took it over. Many of the early saints and even religious orders such as the Chaldeas out of Iona in Ireland between Scotland and Ireland, they were all Druids who were hired by the Christians as kind of middlemen. But they also saved all the old traditional mythologies. And that's why we know about things like mistletoe and the power of the certain trees. And that's where the Ohm came from. Now, the Ohm stones are basically from the same lineage of the standing stones of the megalithic era. Now, the megalith is the idea of a standing stone having a spiritual significance within pagan, Celtic and other societies starts at the Neolithic. So long before thousands of years before the Celtic people ever came along, then it made its way into the Bronze Age. There's lots of Bronze Age standing stones. And it continued on, and not only in Ireland, but in the Nordic world. You see the rune stones and so on. And in Ireland, an alphabet system based on trees called Ohm was developed. And it's pronounced Ohm like the resistor, a, res- a measurement of resisting Ohm, although it's spelled O-G-H-A-M. Welcome to Irish. It's a very funny language. Mm-hmm. Now, here's an example. We noticed 300 of these stones that have survived. Now, it may have been written down on paper. In fact, it probably was parchment and letter. These are all perishable, easily destroyed materials. And these stones, now, when I was growing up in school, they said, that, oh, the Ohm stones were used by the early Christians. They're a Christian cipher used in Ireland. Well, when you look at it, of the 300 stones known, most of them are in Ireland and some are in Wales, and I think there's one in Cornwall in England, 290 of them have pagan inscriptions on them. Very, very pagan type, uh, almost very similar to Nordic paganism, very magical language like son of the raven born, alive like fire, devotions to the Morrigan and this kind of thing, like gods like that, goddesses. And we were told that these were all Christian things. Now, some of them are vertical slits and they were struck with horizontal strips were hit with shapes to make them look like crucifixes. I'm starting to doubt that now because the crucifix probably wasn't even used as a common Christian symbol until the late Middle Ages. There was no real symbol for Christianity. So that's why all these early so-called Christian monuments in Ireland, Scotland, and England that have crosses on them, particularly what they call the Croix Petit, which is the Maltese cross shape. You come over here, Greg. I will take you and show you a 2,500-year-old crucifix made of stone that was put there by the Druids 500 years before the so-called birth of Jesus Christ. There's so much lies told to us about our past. It's not even funny. But anyway, back to the Ohm. <laughs> uh, University College Cork has the biggest collection in Ireland. I went down to see them preserved inside their museum down there. I went down to Cork to do an event, and I was all happy, and I went in to see them. I'm not joking you. They're literally held like prisoners in a dungeon. They're mounted onto the wall with these concrete and metal straps held around them. It's almost like symbolically say, these are ours now. That's a big Jesuit call us, by the way. These are ours now, and they'll never be free. And you're like, what the hell is going on? These are incredibly important artifacts from our history. It's horrible. Now, many have been pushed over and hidden. Many were destroyed. But what's interesting, also some of them were actually carved, when we're talking about maybe 2,000 years ago, onto Neolithic standing stones to show that I outline in my book the magical traditions of the proto-shamanic world that built the likes of Stonehenge and Avebury and Avora and Karnak and Newgrange. And up in Scotland, you have on the Isle of Lewis, you know, places like Scarra Bray. Well, 
they were part of a continuous spiritual and magical tradition that lasted for thousands of years and carried a tremendous amount of wisdom with them, a tremendous amount of indigenous spiritual wisdom that was simply annihilated by the Christian onslaught. Now, the only things that we really do have that survive intact are a good bit of the Irish mythological and spiritual traditions and a good bit of the Nordic, because remember, it took a long time for the Christians to conquer the Viking world. So the Ohm Stones is a fascinating thing, and they're definitely not Christian orange. They're definitely pagan. But if you do a PhD course in any Irish university today on Irish antiquities, you will not pass unless you hammer your Christian colors to the mast of these ancient and incredible artifacts. Wow, man. <laughs> You're right. There are just so many lies that it gets confusing, but you really seem to have a pretty good handle on it. And I just wish I could have seen it all in full force. And I guess I would ask you what you think Druidic culture and their magical ways look like at their height when you try to reconstruct that picture. I think they would have been very similar to what you have in the Vedic Hindu world. Mm. I think there's enough there to actually show there's something. Well, we do know they come from a common Indo-European route. You have the Indo-European culture that developed about 4,000 years ago in southern Russia one half of the family moved away into Europe and became the European pagan tradition. And the other half went down to the Indian subcontinent and became the Vedic tradition, which later on became Hinduism and so on. There's so many similarities between the two things. The archetypal gods are so similar. Like Indra is the same as Thor and Dunar. And there's so many other aspects to it. The, the veneration of chariots. There is an amazing detective story to there and a project that one day if i don't do it or get or help do it is that we need to start doing this massive detective story to glue the vedic because the vedas survived and the vedic archetypes remained intact over thousands and thousands of years there's enough there to rebuild a proper and i'm not talking about wicca or something like that i'm talking about a proper pagan spiritual system of veneration or tradition based on this detective story of amalgamating them both with the Vedic and then finding the commonalities. For instance, there's the raven goddess. You know, it's very common. You have the Morrigan in Ireland. You have Bran. Well, Bran is a horn-headed god, but sometimes it appears as that. You have the Valkyries, of course, and then you have the Dumbavate in the Hindu tradition. So I'm hoping to get out to Sri Lanka and India in the new year and really get tearing into this because... Well, all you have to do is look at the spiritual science of the Vedas, right, to show that they knew about things like quantum mechanics and they knew about the underlying structure of the universe was not made of matter, it was made of fluctuation of energy waves. I guarantee you that both the satyrs of the Norse world and the druids of the Celtic world or the Celtic Gaulish world would probably have operated on the same spiritual ideas because ultimately it would have been derived from a common proto-Shermanic route that was from the megalith builders. And as you said yourself, at, at Newgrange and Stonehenge, you would have seen those incredible stones with these incredible motif spirals carved into them. If these people were trying to express the undenying nature of reality, there's no difference between the Vedic image of uh, Shiva at the center of the wheel, turning and burning and destroying and recreating the universe and the triple spirals you see at Newgrange, they're both expressing the same magical insight into the fundamental building blocks of the cosmos and consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really loved that 
stone that was in front of Newgrange with all the spirals on it. Very psychedelic type of thing, but I think that that's another mechanism in which you can see the fabric of reality underneath what we see every day. So just really fascinating stuff. And in the same way I was educated on the Ohm language and the stones in your book, you also write about some major figures in the history of the magical tradition. And because so much of that history is lost, could you tell us about a lesser known person or two that you think people interested in this lost knowledge should know about and probably don't? Well, it's still amazing to me that Austin Osmond Spare is still an obscure character. Now, he was an English artist, and it must be said, a phenomenal artist, a naturally gifted working class, which it seems to come from this kind of what the British author Peter Ackroyd called the Cockney mystics. And this may have been development of a kind of a magical world among the Cockneys and the people, the working class of London, that gave us the likes of William Blake, for example the mystic poet, gave us the likes of William Turner, the painter. Now, he was very much of that lineage, though much later. He was lived during the time of the Second World War, and he was a devotee of Alistair Crowley. Now, he basically was the first one to realize, mainly because he was working class. You see, this is interesting how the as above, so below maxim, it generally always appears everywhere. He almost took the sorcery and magic of the aristocrats and through his use of the sigil and the understanding of the sigil as a kind of a free-form, unstructured version of a rite or a magical desire, and understood the full power of this sort of almost like hieroglyphic or glyphic aspect of it. He took magic and brought it into the 20th century. You know, this is a guy who was greatly influenced the likes of Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page had a vast amount of his paintings. He still has them as in his personal collection. He was the one who opened up the idea that he was continuing on this process of the Druids. Again, very Cockney, very English, very London, but still part of an incredible, you know, the magical tradition of the cunning folk of that part of the world, which is sort of like an urban shaman, urban magician type thing that existed, well, from about the time of the Renaissance up until modern times. You still would have had them in London among working class communities. People would have actually done magic. That's another thing too. While the aristocrats were keeping magic for themselves and doing rites according to complex classical or Egyptian conjurations, the working class had a very simple, more freeform concept of working magic and getting away with it. And Spare came out of that. In World War II, I wrote a book called Valpurgis Night on how the Nazis in the Third Reich took the magical tradition of central Germany, basically corrupted it and, well, totally corrupted it, and then sought to replace it with the kind of classical Roman idea of spirituality. But there's a rumor that he sold Adolf Hitler a painting. Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich, even though they were vehemently denied later on, were very much a magical order, very, very much so. Came out of that whole idea of the Haxan tradition and the later Freemasonic tradition of central Germany. And Spare, his house was blown up in World War II. He was ended up homeless. He was probably because he was such a powerful magical attenuator, maybe the Nazi bombs actually found him. This is a problem when he started practicing magic. Basically, your home starts exploding and things like this. And you will notice things like electrical power constantly fails. Well, he was doing this on a vast scale. He also was a star as a painter for a short while. He was seen as this great prodigy of English art, the up-and-coming great star. 
towards the end of his life, you read some of the superb biographies out there of him. He was living in this apartment in London, basically, with a bunch of demons. You know, and this is all written down by people who visited him and stuff like this. And, you know, why don't we know more about these guys? Why are these, you know, and again, it's the, the magical class system. Yeah, man. Fascinating. And there is just so much to know. And you, you mentioned Crowley. Well, in the book, you write about Crowley having a residence on Loch Ness, which I knew. But you also float the idea that Crowley might have even caused the creature to appear due to his working of the right of Abra Merlin, the mage, citing that all the appearances of Nessie are after 1889. That's provocative. Maybe there is a connection there, huh? Yeah, I've come to believe this is the default origin theory for, and my, well, for myself until I get something better, for the Loch Ness Monster. There's definitely something going on in that lake. It's the same reason, like, people say, all the videos of it are fuzzy. Well, the same reason the videos are fuzzy of the Loch Ness Monster, the same reason that the videos are fuzzy of UFOs, because they're not actually there. What the person is perceiving as a solid craft or a a monster with it that looks like a dinosaur is just a mere fluctuation in the quantum field. The fabric is broken down and the camera cannot capture what the third eye or the human psyche can perceive. And that's why those images are always fuzzy. And you always have the skeptics always say, oh, no, there's no clear shots of a UFO. Of course not. They're not there. The disturbances in the field, they disturb the matter around them. So therefore, like Crowley went there, he was supposed to do the six-month ritual at the Abbot Melon the Mage. An exhausting rite that involves everything from basically emptying your bells out, starvation, masturbation, suffering extreme temperatures, being in freezing cold water. The idea, this is what magic is, to burst through your consciousness firewall out of this reality and into the other realities. Now, because of issues that were going on with magical orders back outside Scotland, he had to basically cancel the rite, but he also probably miss drinking and drugs and things like that and having a good time so look if you are a practicing magician one of the things you always practice on is water water and human consciousness we know this from the work of dr emoto which i believe is a very very good scientific work that water directly responds to human consciousness absolutely no doubt about that so here was this guy the most powerful magician in the world working an enormous complex and energetically convulsive turbulent right next to a lake and he gave one of the entities he brought forward i would suggest is the loch ness monster nessie who's probably trapped for all eternity in that water manifests now and again people get a fuzzy photograph vast numbers of people get to see it and that's my theory now there is people will say well saint columba exercised a monster from the lake back in the i think it was 800 or something uh no, he didn't. That's an incorrect. A lot of skeptics like to throw that one out there. He actually exercised a serpent or a monster from the River Ness, which is a long way from Loch Ness. It's the river that does feed it. But the actual location where St. Columba exercised this demon, a monster, well, it's very vague, was not on the lake itself, but at a river many, many miles away. And then there was nothing, nothing, nothing. Then this Crowley character shows up. Starts working the Abermel and the Mage right, and the next thing you know, he leaves, and then all these appearances of monsters in the lake start happening. Until something better comes along, I think it's quite a plausible theory. Oh, yeah, man. I'm with you, too. And 
if it's something ethereal or elemental, I mean, that definitely makes sense why it's not captured in some net when they troll the lock. And it's probably why it seems like sightings have maybe died down a little bit if the energy was way more potent near the time of the ritual. So, I mean, compared to other possibilities, I think that one ranks pretty high on the list. And that is another note I took from your book when you mentioned that Christian missionaries exercised every lake and river in Scotland and Ireland. And that's just really interesting to me because it just seems like a strange thing to do. And I know there's probably a major psychological purpose to do that at the time. But I guess I'm also curious about the general creatures of folklore, elementals and that kind of stuff. Could they have actually been banishing or erasing these magical beings? Were they real at some point? Well, they would have been real to the people that they were trying to impress. A lot of these Christian monks and missionaries who would have been dealing with these banishment or anti-diabolical rites on these lakes, a lot of pagan folklores related to water. Into it, you'll notice read in my book, I very much have a great affection for the work of H.P. Lovecraft, yeah. the idea that human consciousness submerged within the depths of the darkest, deepest water. Now, this was not lost in our pagan ancestors. In fact, Ireland is named after a tribe called the Erni, the Eru or the Erni, the Era, the goddess Era, but lives in a lake in Northern Ireland, County Fermanagh. And the tribe at the time there took her out. And when Queen Maeve, the legendary queen, and her handmaiden and female magicians went left, they went to live in the lake. Now, that's a submergence of the pagan identity into the water from whence it came. So this is why ancient warriors would throw offerings into the sea, into lakes. There was a belief that half of what you wear, and I think it's a very good belief, because it was at the bottom of the deepest, darkest waters. So a lot of these rituals to banish monsters, quote unquote, from these lakes was really a symbolic act by the Christians to say, your gods do not live in the lakes. Your consciousness does not live in the trees and the mountains that's around them, in the rivers, in the groves. There's only one God and existence space up in heaven above you. So they would have been very, very aggressive and intimidating rites. And the idea would have been to play up, say, look, your druids have no power over us. Well, they probably had no power over them because they have already had paid mercenaries armed to the teeth. In fact, I think it was in Loch Erne in County Donegal, there's a story that St. Patrick, whoever that thing was, represented, had the druids thrown into the lake. In fact, the lake bodies are the bog bodies. In Ireland, the bogs are very significant. The bog bodies, that would have been the ultimate way to destroy your soul. The cast to cut your throat and throw you into the bog. So they would have reserved that for the people with the least honor in society. Pedophiles, rapists, ones who betrayed the tribe. Cut their throat, throw them into the darkest black water of the bog, and they would never reincarnate because reincarnation was incredibly central to all pagan traditions. In fact, reincarnation is the central model. So these would have been very intimidating, spectacular, and symbolic acts done by these Christian ones to show, look, your druids have no power. Hmm. <laughs> what a dirty trick. That's the way it goes. You know, you also write about this a little bit, but I love to hear about magical advisors of the elite. Everybody knows John Dee and Queen Elizabeth, but you mentioned Peter the Great and him having a guy named uh, General James Bruce who kind of served a similar function as a sort of royal wizard, and that's a pairing I haven't heard much about. 
Yeah, I wouldn't have probably not written the book on sorcery if I didn't come across all this information. When the Soviet Union fell, of all the things they could have gotten from the Soviet Union, all the things they could have discovered from them, taken from them, why did the Soros Foundation go over to Soviet Union and buy up all their books on magic and the occult and alchemy, assemble them with all the leading scholars of these subjects, academic ones, of course, in Fordham University in 1991, and then from this, basically explore well, why were they interested in the Russian occult? Well, the same reason they were interested in the occult of the Third Reich. These guys want to know this stuff. It's like, you know, Cornelius Vanderbilt said, you know, millionaires don't use astrology, billionaires do. Now, this Count Jakob character, fascinating character, uh, Peter the Great, well, the Romanov family, he was very much fascinated by magic and witchcraft. He had, like, basically... Finnish witches as his counsels within the court and things like this. He was very much into things like minerals and crystals and stuff like that and the healing properties of them. Now, this guy called Count Jakob was an interesting character. He was a Scottish aristocrat who ended up in the School of Navigation and Sciences in Moscow in a place called the Shugarev Tower. Now, this is another thing that shows up again, whether it's in the great Portuguese age of discovery, John Dee with his creation of the Royal Navy, the link between seafaring, maritime exploration, and the occult in that period is very, very strong. I mean, when John Dee came up with the idea of the British Empire, I-M-P-I-R-E, he specifically mentioned the kind of ships that the spirits had told him to build, to say, to be built of oak from... England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, and there were specific classes of ship. And it was exactly what they needed to take out the Spanish Armada. And it basically just seriously undermined the Spanish Empire. And then you have this idea of how central the Knights Templar were to the Portuguese great age of exploration and maritime exploration. And Peter the Great and the Shukrav Tower in Moscow and Count Yakov were also central to this idea that somehow the occult and seafaring in terms of navigation went hand in hand. Now, your man Count Jakob used to produce a book. It was called a black book. It was basically a black magic text, which he was said to have summoned demons to tell him about the future. It was sold as an almanac every single year. And the great and the good of Russian society would always buy this book and consult it for the years ahead. Now, remember, this at a time when Russia really became a great empire. It really went out from, you know, this is the great imperial age of Russia and the development of Russia as a superpower in terms of naval and other ideas. And there was the Enlightenment and all these other great scientific processes were going on, as well as magic, which is also central to it as well. And Count Yakov kept a book of what they said were the greatest black magic texts known to the world and were walled up in secret compartments inside the Shukarev Tower. After the Russian Revolution, I think it was in the 1930s, the Bolsheviks decided to demolished the Sukarev Tower because they said it was a symbol of the old imperial Russia. We never found out for sure if those books were ever found or not. But again, right at the heart of the main empire is the magical consultant. I love it, man. That's an amazing thread because of all the corners of the globe, the Russian occult is probably the thread I hear about the least. So I just think that is really interesting. You make some great points about why is that where the attention is, is on those occult books. And we've seen it at many other periods in history too. They say, there's nothing to this stuff. You don't even need to worry about it. But yet they're very seemingly obsessed with it. So definitely uh, can't take what they say at face value. And 
You know, you have a lot of really great history in the book, but to bring it up to modern times, there's a quote I really like here where you say, This book is designed to help the reader create a barrier against the forces that have been masticating upon your soul since the time you were an infant. (laughs) And that's provocative. You know, that's what I'm talking about. But can you elaborate on the forces you're referring to there? You, everyone we know, and everyone listening to this show, we don't want to admit it. We were born into a world where our purpose was to become automatons suspended in a sea of sorcery that was not our own sorcery. You can call it marketing, you can call it public relations, you can call it mind control, you can call it jingoism, propaganda, extreme patriotism, religion. But these are all magical ideas, and we were placed into them like rats in a laboratory. And we were given serious beliefs and things that we were supposed to embrace into our souls and who we are as individuals and as a culture. We never accept them. We just think that they're true. We just go along with them. They're all black magic spells. You know, take away all the hype and take away all the sensationalism of kids, you know, writing 666 on a crucifix in some cemetery while listening to Slayer back in the 80s or something. Hmm. Take all that away. What black magic really is is to get inside someone else's consciousness and to alter their perception of reality, not according to their needs, but according to your desires and will. And that's what black magic is. And we live in a world, whether you're dealing with politics, whether you're dealing with religion, marketing, corporations, we are under, and culture in particular. Terence McKenna wasn't a million miles off when he said culture is not your friend, although I disagree to an extent because he was probably talking about American culture. I mean, there's all kinds of different culture out there, good and bad, very empowering and stifling. Mm He wasn't specific, but I know exactly where the man was coming from. And that's just it. We're automatons suspended in a sea of sorcery. And, you know, there's no end of individuals and organizations. If you don't do it yourself, they're more than willing to do it for you. Absolutely. And kind of on the same theme, you have a great paragraph on a blog post, Don't Love Your Enemies and Parasites, Banish Them, where you write that, One of the most wickedest concepts ever given to humans from Christianity was the idea of loving one's enemies. This, along with the monstrously dangerous notion of unconditional love, were both specifically designed to make humans weak and docile, so power structures could control and oppress them more effectively. As a result, our personal and private lives are also constantly in a state of damage control while trying to deal with the everyday parasites and cretins who are trying to feed off our life energy. All this while we attempt to remain decent and sociable individuals. I am right there with you. That's another component to the box that we're put in today is these kind of themes. And they sound great on the surface, but maybe there's a deeper reason why they're given to us to, you know, eat out of like a horse's saddlebag. I mean, how can you disagree with that? You're a lamb to the slaughter. Don't think... If someone comes to destroy you, don't offer resistance. Well, in every case, who's coming to destroy you? The state, the machine, the mechanism of control, the emergence of nonsense, the pathological, uh, the mortal gods of your reality. Oh, don't hate them. Love them. (laughs) Love thy enemy. Turn the other cheek. You compare that to in the Vedas, in the Bhagavad Gita, where uh, Arjuna, who's despondent in the Battle of Puruashta, before the god Shiva in his chariot, what does Shiva say? Fight, Arjuna, fight. 
Mm. That's why the Vikings lasted so long. That's why the Vikings, after the Charlemagne had the bloody verdict of Verdun, and cold-bloodedly executed 4,000 Saxons who refused to become Christians, they knew that their turn was next. So they didn't sit around and wait for, you know, their enemy to come so they could love them. There was 300 years or so of direct warfare between the pagans of the Viking world and the Christians. In fact, the pivotal thing that's cited at the beginning of the Viking world, the attack on the Lindisfarne Monastery, that was basically a military operation. Those monasteries were filled with knights. They were all retired knights. They were armed to the teeth, and they were castles pushing Christianity on the masses. And so, yeah, I mean, turn the other cheek. I mean, give your hand things that are ridiculous in all your life. I mean, when you get away from all the absurdity of Christian programming, you say, you know, what a crock of shit that you sold us with all that. <laughs> Cheers to that. And to talk about the spiritual side, a good quote from the book is that a demon loves nothing more than a tortured, failed poet with an opium addiction. And I get that. But what can be said about demons in the world in general and the effects they can have and how to know if we're being affected by one or some? I don't really know what a demon is for sure. All I know is they exist. They absolutely exist, whether they're an aspect of a separate consciousness form, a different kind of consciousness, whether they are an aspect of our own consciousness, but they do. There's a sort of a supplementary other daemon, to use the original Greek term. There are other manifested consciousness that exist outside the human experience. I'm not just talking about the idea of the demons in the classical sense or the Christian sense. I'm also talking about things like fairies. I'm also talking about things like elves, aliens, especially the gray alien idea. All through history, we've had these companions. Are they some kind of adversarial group at war with us? Maybe. I don't know. Or are they a pathological feedback loop which humanity creates for itself in order to light a fire on their own consciousness to deal with them, to explore ourselves in terms of boosting our consciousness. This is why grimoires and the conjuration of demonic entities are so central to the magic of the Renaissance. They were pushing and put and the Middle Ages. They were pushing the idea that if I can get beyond myself and contact these creatures or these entities that are not bound to this space time, and that's the primary purpose, you can get information about the future, the past and the present. So this is big. I mean, the whole thing of demons is not just the Christian idea. They're all tormenting. It's a power force you can capture to turn yourself into a kind of a god. If you can capture this power force and then exploit its attributes, which is why when you do this, you treat them very shabbily, you will get information about lost items. This is basically what the cunning folk of London did back in, say, the time of the Restoration when the Puritan Age ended. They would summon an entity called Oberon, which is also mentioned in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. And Oberon was basically a king of the fairies. And interesting is he was portrayed in an Arabic form, very similar to how a jinn would be portrayed in the Islamic entity tradition to get information about lost goods. So basically the idea was you would get the demon, trap it, and you wouldn't let it go until you got what you wanted from it or it told you where the money was hidden or what racehorse is going to win this race and this kind of thing, or information about give me great magical power. So yeah, what they are exactly, I don't know. Again, like magic, they will come looking for you if you're not coming looking for them. And 
I have so many people who've read my book, Source of the Invocation of Strangeness, and say so many weird things happened them reading the book. Electric appliances that were brand new failed and no one could fix them. The wiring in their house had problems. Books and photographs would fly off walls. Now, it's not that they become possessed or anything like that. But when you start taking an interest in these subjects, it's almost like our demonic friends take an interest in you. 99.99% of the time, they mean you no harm. They're just being curious. They're just being observational. But they absolutely do exist. I can put my hand on my heart and say that. And they're from the same world as the fairies and the gray aliens. Yeah, man. And I love that phrase, beings not bound to this space time, because I definitely think that time is a component as well. And you can get so much insight from these things, it seems. I mean, I'm not personally, but I've seen so many examples and little sagas of it happening that I'm inclined to believe it. But man, really great stuff. There's just so much lost history and knowledge. We're really lucky to have passionate advocates of its resurrection out there like you. So big thanks for doing it justice. And before I cut you loose, tell the people where they can find you, your blog, your YouTube, your books, and anything else you might be working on next. I've got some events coming up. I'm going to be doing an event with Cara St. Louis and Maria Wheatley, who are quite known in the these scenes and we're going to be doing a thing on fairies and magic in the Utenberg in Salzburg in Austria at the beginning of September. So anyone who lives in Central Europe is more than welcome. That'll be a great couple of days exploring the Germanic magical tradition and other things. We're visiting some very powerful places within the Germanic magical world and idea of other beings. I'm also be going to Australia later in the year and probably back to the US. My website is thomassheridanarts.com. The links to all the books are there, Sorcery, the Druid Code, they're right on the front page. My best YouTube channel for what we've been talking about today is Open Source Occult TV. And you can get to everything from that. Awesome, man. You are just so knowledgeable. I really appreciate you taking the time. Your work is really fascinating, and I like your style. So keep it up and take care out there. And likewise, thank you very much, Greg, and many more strings to your bow on THC. <laughs> Likewise, man. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Sweet lords and lasses of the Oham, right, guys? See, people think I'm some kind of intelligent person, and then I pronounce something like Ohm, Oham, like a good Missouri boy would be expected to do. I was going to re-record that, and then I thought it was funny enough to keep. And maybe I'm always this bad, but pronunciation lately has been a real challenge, especially this week and last. But Thomas Sheridan, folks, a fun guest you probably were not expecting, knowledgeable about the old ways, schooled in the magical arts. I like his style. I like his vibe. I liked his bit about Crowley and the Loch Ness Monster. We learned about history that I doubt a lot of people knew, some figures of history that are lesser known, some sagas of that all-important crossroads where the elite class and magic intersect. Good stuff. Good dude. And I would recommend his book, Sorcery. In fact, he's got a pretty solid personal library across the board. A lot of other books I'd like to get into. But this was a great addition to the long list of guests who have talked about their insight and perspective on magic. And that's a long, highly learned list at this point. Sometimes I look back and think about just this slice of shows that are on magic from a personal perspective. 
And it's kind of crazy, the library we have. Philip Farber, Dr. Stephen Skinner, Gordon White, Dr. David Shoemaker, Jason Miller a couple of times, Mike Sententia. That right there should just be a playlist of the different schools of magic and the different perspectives on them. You know, I even think back to the fact that we had Lon Milo Duquette on really early in the THC life circle. I can't seem to get him back now, but we had him then. And that was when I was just super entry level to all this stuff. But that's all just to say that I think Thomas Sheridan fits in nicely with those guests and still has a voice of his own. Sometimes I think about the archives of this show the way a Star Wars fanatic probably thinks about collecting memorabilia. It's like, okay, well, let's look at the spread. Where's there a gap? Let's fill that gap right there. Oh, I need a Millennium Falcon. I could use a couple more Jawas. But I do like that when I look at the collective library of THC shows, you give me any subject and I pretty much have a couple of go-to episodes I can pull out and say, here's our best on that. And I don't know, I just got thinking about how our magic library is stacking up and it's quite good. I'm always impressed with people who know anything about older cultures too. Or even know enough about different cultures to get into comparative work because that seems really hard to do and maintain any kind of accuracy. There was that moment today where Thomas mentions that we should amalgamate the Druidic traditions with the Vedic, and I just thought, hey, let's get Laird Scranton back here, and you guys can sort it all out. We also talked about Newgrange a little bit, which is such an awesome site. Look up some pictures, but it's just one of those many mysterious sites in that region, one that I've actually been to, And we mentioned the big entrance stone that was there. From what I understand, they had to move it to go inside. But that stone is pretty awesome. Just like a big guardrail-sized rock with spirals cut all over it. I thought it was so cool that I actually did buy a replica in the gift shop. Like a regular old chump. But I just love that it spoke to the psychedelic quality of these traditions. I mean, the rock looks like an ancient tie-dye shirt as far as I'm concerned. Of course, there are many ways to get to that place where you do see the underlying structure of reality, the ones and zeros, if you will. I don't know how they were doing it. I can't say they used entheogens or compounds in particular, but they definitely got there. Regardless, loved this show. Really interesting first hour. And as interesting as that first hour was, you know there's a second hour for paid subscribers. And in it, we covered the fairy family tree. Thomas's magical worldview and personal experiences, creating ways to generate that magical charge, the attack on the imagination, and the magical importance of salt and quartz crystal. Crystal's been coming up a lot lately, hasn't it? But I love the full show here. Big thanks to Thomas for sharing his knowledge. I was humbled to know that he's actually listened to the show before, and that always makes me feel good. But do check out his work. Tell him thanks if you had a good time. And I guess I'm going to declare this meeting of the Midnight Society closed. Your move, sorcery suppressors, druid destroyers, and captains of the big, long steamroll of history. Your fucking move. This is important. Hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while I still can To ask you a question Cause I 
Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're 